0: It's time to treat the illegal wildlife trade as the serious organised crime that it is. It is carried out by ruthless cross-border criminal networks. It is fuelled by corruption. It damages economic growth and sustainable development. It undermines governance and the rule of law. It robs communities today of their future sources of income. And it exploits the poorest people in some of the most vulnerable countries on earth.
1: In wet markets like these creatures such as live peacocks civets and cats and dogs are sold to eager customers this one in wuhan is believed to be where the covid 19 virus made its jump to humans procrastination is
2: no longer an option say the experts the african rhino now faces extinction in vietnam and other countries in asia must take urgent action to put a stop to this bloody trade.
0: Organised criminal networks are adding to their profits through involvement in wildlife crime. They see it as a lucrative and relatively low-risk activity. They are the very same group who move drugs, people and weapons. About 150 years ago, over a million black and white rhinos littered the plains of Africa. But persistent hunting by European settlers caused a significant and rapid decline in numbers. By the 1970s and 80s poaching once again increased due to demand for rhino horn from traditional chinese medicines south africa has around 80 percent of the world's rhino population and in 2019 594 rhinos were killed that's an average of one every 15 hours but since the covid lockdown hit south africa at the end of march the government has said there's been a dramatic decline in the amount of rhinos killed with just six killed in April, compared with 46 killed at the same time last year. So one of the questions to ask is, is this a trend that can be maintained? But the rhinos are not the only animals that suffer from this illegal trade. Others like pangolins, big cats like tigers, lions and cheetahs, and elephants are also victims, as well as smaller species of reptiles, birds and mammals. The poaching aspect of the trade is only the beginning of an illegal journey that spans the globe, with the help of criminal trafficking groups, unscrupulous businesses and entrepreneurial individuals selling online. Throughout this episode, you'll see that the illegal wildlife trade has huge socio-economic consequences on the communities where this trade takes place. Not to mention the threat to biodiversity, environmental sustainability, the brutality suffered by the animals themselves and how the illegal wildlife trade has been implicated as a cause of the COVID-19 outbreak. The illegal wildlife trade is complex and far-reaching. It's estimated to be worth between 7 and 23 billion US dollars, making it one of the most lucrative forms of transnational organised crime. On top of that, it's also used as a way to launder illicit proceeds from other illegal markets, such as narcotics, the arms trade and modern slavery. What I want to make clear from the start is that this is not just about conservation, as important as that is, it's also a major crime issue. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. For 12 weeks, this special edition weekly podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organised crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. You can't talk about the wildlife trade, both legal and illegal, and not start with China. On the one hand, there is the legal farming of animals, such as foxes and raccoon dogs, which are killed for their fur and then sold on commercially. And videos have emerged over the years which show how brutal this process can be. Then there is the legal trade in wildlife for the traditional medicine market. And this can be legal despite the species being seriously endangered, such as pangolins and leopards. Bears are bred to repeatedly extract what's known as bear bile, again for traditional medicinal purposes. And this is marketed as a cure for cancer, colds and recently COVID-19. Until very recently there was also a large scale commercial farming of wild animals for consumption as food. But that's recently been banned in China due to the COVID outbreak. Then you have the illegal wildlife trade. Much of this online through social media platforms, for example sales of rhino horn, ivory carvings, pangolin scales, body parts of bears and other animals, is widely sold online. Even illegal wild animals are offered to restaurants for sale as food. Then of course there are the traditional medicines which utilise the illegal trade on a large scale, with medicinal products that are sold as either medicines or more broadly as health tonics. The exotic wildlife for consumption is often sold at what is known as a wet market in China and Southeast Asia, which is a term that is broadly used for a market that sells fresh produce, meat, fruit, vegetables, but a small minority of these markets also sell wildlife. And it's in one of these markets in Wuhan that's been linked to the COVID outbreak. Aaron White is a wildlife campaigner and China specialist at the Environmental Investigation Agency in the UK.
3: We don't yet know for sure how the virus originally crossed over to humans, but as you say, it has been linked to a a market in Wuhan where many of the first cases had been. We do also know that various other recently emerging diseases are definitively linked to trade and consumption of wildlife such as SARS, so where there is a market that might sell wild animals. It's a real concern in terms of public health because it's a melting pot of many different species, often in high degrees of stress. So this means that their immune systems might be compromised, they might be shedding pathogens. And crucially, where there are lots of different species all held together in a small space, it provides these opportunities for pathogens to jump between species. And that's really where the risk is heightened. The way that we're treating nature more broadly is also increasing these risks. It's not just these kind of markets. It's also the deforestation and encroachment into natural habitats is bringing people into increased contact with with species that have their own viruses, their own bacteria.
0: When Covid was initially detected late last year, how did Chinese authorities react initially to the wildlife trade?
3: The first policy change that came about in the wake of Covid was at the end of January, three Chinese government agencies issued a a joint notification putting a temporary ban on wildlife trade. This notification wasn't very detailed and it wasn't exactly clear what it related to. And this was subsequently consolidated at the end of February when the National People's Congress Standing Committee, the highest lawmaking body in China, put out a suite of decisions which essentially banned the commercial breeding and sale of most terrestrial wild animal species for consumption as food. So the response from authorities was relatively swift in terms of recognising the reported link between COVID and wildlife trade, but the horse had already bolted in this in this case, if COVID did indeed come from wildlife trade. So for these interventions to really make sense in reducing future risk of pandemics, they need to be made permanent, they need to be crucially well enforced. And they also need to be broadened to, to be a coherent and precautionary approach to wildlife trade.
0: Given the links between the wildlife trade and the outbreak, what was the reaction been to the wildlife trade by Chinese citizens?
3: It's been an interesting phenomenon to To observe in China is that, well, firstly, for many years, there have been a huge number of dedicated advocates in NGOs, in science, in academia in China, who have been calling for greater restrictions on wildlife trade and more effort to end the demand and end the trade in threatened wildlife. But since the emergence of COVID, I think these calls for greater restrictions and this debate has been amplified. Obviously, at the same time, we have other lawmakers who are saying, actually, we should keep this provision that it allows use of wild animals in medicine and we should be continuing state support of commercial breeding of wildlife. Now we have this, this lineup, we have traditional medicine practitioners saying we don't need to use threatened wild animal ingredients. We have many NGOs saying we need to change the law to ban this. And we have even members of the establishment, lawmakers saying we need to extend these recent prohibitions to other forms of wildlife trade, including traditional medicine. So I hope that the decision makers behind the scenes take heed of these calls and do the right thing, both for the image of traditional Chinese medicine and also for biodiversity and extend these prohibitions.
0: We should stress that Chinese authorities have recently been involved with taking down significant illegal wildlife traffickers in Africa, which is of course good news. But why is there this reluctance to tackle the root cause in China itself?
3: I mean, there are certainly powerful lobbies at play. It's interesting that the lawmakers have already decided to not bow to those industry pressures and ban trade for of wildlife as food. Of course, it's not always big industry that's involved in every stage. So you do still have people who are encouraged to get into farming of wildlife as food by the government who are not rich people, but might be poor farmers who are breeding snakes or rats on their land. So these people need to be supported, provided with compensation and helped in developing alternative livelihoods. Those considerations are really important in the ethical rollout of these policies and the effectiveness of these policies. Yeah, you're right to say that the Chinese authorities have in some cases done some fantastic work in tackling illegal wildlife trade. We've seen the China Customs Anti Smuggling Bureau, for example, doing some exemplary investigative work and working with counterparts internationally to repatriate criminals who were in Africa, for example, and that's that's fantastic, should be applauded. Unfortunately it's not been a it's not been consistent. There are some glaring holes in the enforcement efforts
0: to date. And do you expect the trading of wildlife to continue and actually have a resurgence once restrictions are lifted?
3: What we've seen so far is that illegal wildlife trade certainly hasn't stopped because of the pandemic. We're still seeing huge amounts of tiger parts, ivory, rhino horns, bare body parts being sold on on social media, in some cases even linked to the pandemic as a health tonic. That's something we've seen with rhino horn medicines and tiger burns in Southeast Asia. So we certainly mustn't assume that as we come out of lockdown and as the pandemic situation eases that wildlife trade is going to stop. As long as we have, for example, policies in in China and other countries that encourage and legitimise the consumption of threatened wild animal species, as long as we have inconsistent and ineffective application and enforcement of laws that are there to protect wildlife. As long as corruption and vested interests are scuppering our efforts to to stop trade threatening biodiversity worldwide, this is a problem that is going to persist.
0: That was Aaron White, a wildlife campaigner and Chinese specialist at the Environmental Investigation Agency in the UK. The consumption and use of animals in Southeast Asian countries has a long history. A valuable source of protein and for use in traditional medicines. But what about now? How important is the cultural aspect of society in East Asian countries in respect to the consumption and use of animals in the 21st century? Nirmal Ghosh is the US bureau chief of the Straits Times as well as an environmental crime journalist who has spent a parallel life working in wildlife conservation in Asia and he's also a member of the GI network of experts.
4: It's a huge aspect. It's a, it's, a, it's a basis of a lot of it, but it has is, it is, it is sort of outgrown the fundamental cultural aspect of bushmeat, of protein from wildlife sources, and a range, a wide array of wildlife sources. You will find, for example, very interestingly, a difference, say, in India, where very, until very recently, vegetarianism was pretty much the norm and eating meat was only for special occasions for the vast majority of the population. Whereas in Southeast Asia, in Northeast India and Southeast Asia, tribal societies traditionally ate wild protein for centuries. So that is cultural. Also attributing medicinal attributes to certain species of wildlife, that is also arguably cultural. And it is very difficult to counter that because uh, it's really it's really very deeply ingrained having said that you can counter it there are a lot of examples of of things which are basically cultural which no longer exist in india hundreds of years ago the, the, the practice of sati where a widow would jump on a funeral pyre to be burned alive when a husband on her husband's funeral pyre that was outlawed and that was eradicated you could arguably say that was part of the culture hundreds of years ago that is gone now
0: Given the assertion that COVID started in one of these wet markets, how have people reacted? Are they waiting for them to be reopened or are they seeing this as something that needs to stop? Is there any real consensus view on that?
4: There is a consensus, I would say, that it needs to be stopped. But again, you know, if you look at uh, countries with uh, ungoverned spaces or you look at a huge country like China, people often overestimate the ability of a government, the government of China, for example, it was amply demonstrated in the early days of this COVID-19 episode, how it is possible to control large spaces, which it did very impressively, in fact. But it's it's very difficult to actually control wildlife wet markets because we saw this in SARS. When SARS came out in 2003, it was similar. It came from a wild species. There was a backlash. There was a ban on on wet markets that was sustained for a while and then it crept back again in part because the COVID-19 is not going to affect the dynamics of supply and demand when it has so many complex aspects to it including the cultural one that you had mentioned which runs very deep so while there is a new realization there's a question of uh, sustaining a ban a permanent ban which China has instituted there's a question of sustaining it and there's also the question of man's relationship with wildlife and nature we've had people almost scapegoating bats, for example, an overreaction to nature. So people are afraid of wildlife. And as we know from experience of human history, if people are afraid of something, they either, they tend to either kill it to control it or to worship it, or maybe even both in some cases.
0: The illegal wildlife trade, as you said, is interlinked with many other types of illicit crimes. So how important is it that law enforcement from around the world come together to look at this as a crime and also as an issue of public health?
4: Yes, absolutely. As uh, looking at it as crime as well as uh, public health, the public health aspect. Of while while every country has protocols, you know, if you bring an animal into Germany, for example, or Singapore, or the US, there's quarantines and so on and so forth. But then, on the other hand, you look at the massive exotic pet trade; it's legal. The public health aspects of this are well known to public health professionals, but not so well known at all to the general public. If you ask around in the general public what diseases they might get from cats and dogs or just to name two common species or or others, I mean, there's normally very little knowledge of it. So I think both from the crime aspect and from the public health aspect and public health really might actually grab the general population more, especially in the wake of COVID-19. I mean, so much of this is Neglected. If you look at India, for example, if you look at the free range dog population, which is huge in India, particularly across Asia, but in India, particularly, India is also, I think, pretty high up in the world uh, rabies incidents. So the media glare on something like COVID 19, there is a risk that it obscures the fact that this sort of thing is going on all the time, that there have been so many zoonotic diseases emerging, and we continue to suffer from, say, mosquito-borne diseases, and that is going just going to get worse with climate change.
0: With those health risks that appear to be now as clear as day to more people than ever before, do you think this could or should be a watershed moment for change?
4: Yes, I think it both. It could, it should. I don't know if it is. I hope it is. Well, we have seen unprecedented things happening. We've seen China, for example, institute a permanent ban on wildlife markets. Uh, we can only say that time will tell. We need enforcement. We need prosecutions. We also need some high-profile arrests and successful prosecutions of wildlife traffickers. There is a tendency to seize contraband, customs all over the place. They, they seize, you know, elephant tusks, pangolins, and so forth, birds, turtles hidden in suitcases, all kinds of things. But then you don't hear much about follow-up investigations and arrests, especially of. The so-called kingpins, you get, you know, couriers and traders arrested. What about the kingpins? You know, So we need law enforcement to step up and we need some high profile arrests and prosecutions to send a message.
0: Do you think to achieve that, there needs to be some kind of multinational collaborative approach? Because as you said, these are transnational networks. They don't respect national boundaries.
4: Absolutely. I think there has to be much more intel sharing now, as you said earlier there is that kind of cooperation in terms of national security terrorism issues but it's time that national security establishments and countries see the environment see natural resources as a national security issue without doubt covid 19 is a national security issue the ramifications of this pandemic are still unfolding i mean they're having geopolitical implications as well so i think it's very important for an international a coordinated international approach and to incentivize governments and intelligence agencies, enforcement agencies to share information on a more proactive basis in terms of wildlife. Certainly they are proactive in terms of terrorism, some pretty proactive in terms of drugs, but on wildlife the fact is that it has been a somewhat low priority and that has to change.
0: That was Nirmal Ghosh, the U.S. Bureau Chief of the Straits Times and he's also a member of the GI Network of Experts. As you heard earlier in the podcast, South Africa contains 80% of the African rhino population. In the late 2000s, there was an explosion in the number of rhinos being killed, from around one a month in 2007, to 1,215 for the entire year in 2014, which was peaking at about three animals a day. Since that time, there has been a decline with the 2019 total of 594 but we're in a deeply concerning situation where the number of deaths each year are outstripping the number of animals being born in some populations, which can lead to a biological spiral towards extinction. But during the COVID lockdown in South Africa, there has been a huge decrease in the number of rhinos being killed. Joe Shaw is the senior manager of the wildlife programme for the WWF South Africa.
2: On the 22nd of May, the Minister of Environment, Forestry and Fisheries in South Africa, released a press release reporting a significant decline in rhino poaching since the lockdown commenced, and that was towards the end of March. And in South Africa, that lockdown was very restrictive, with people being confined to their homes the majority of the time. And as a result of that, April 2020 saw a marked decrease in rhino poaching countrywide, with the fewest rhinos poached in the Kruger National Park in a single month since September 2013.
0: There is often a blanket term of poacher used when discussing this issue. But how important are the socioeconomic factors that actually push people into poaching?
2: Yeah, I think this is a really important point that addressing rhino poaching isn't just about the immediate crime and those anti poaching efforts and technology and boots on the ground, but starting to try and look at some of the deeper drivers that are creating and and perpetuating the system. So I think there are definitely socioeconomic and cultural factors, The, the lack of economic opportunities for people living around parks the limited jobs or other business opportunities. I think the other point to consider here, particularly as part of this conversation, is the role of the organized crime networks within the landscape. So there are, obviously, as this has been going on for a decade now, embedded networks around the parks in both South Africa and Mozambique, and quite high levels of corruption, as one so often finds with organized crime associated with those networks.
0: And given the restrictions in place, the lockdown, as you mentioned, in South Africa, The Kruger National Park, for example, has been closed for tourists. How will that have impacted poachers in their ability to conduct this illegal act?
2: So, it does seem that some element of the lockdown restrictions has had a transformative effect almost on our ability to control poaching. I think we have to recognise that. So rangers and anti-poaching units and canine teams are recognised as essential services and they have continued to work in all protected areas through the COVID-19 lockdown. One suggestion from the minister is that because the park entrance gates have been closed to tourists, it's limited the use of drive-in and drop-off tactics, which have previously been used by poachers to get into the park. I think beyond that site level park response of course there have been severe limitations on national travel across provincial borders but also international travel complete shutdown of airports and of course that will prevent syndicates from moving on to transit and consumer countries so there, there certainly seem to be different layers of this but something has had a dramatic
0: effect but of course with the park not open to tourists. What do you think the longer term impact will be for the park and the ability to prevent poaching if revenue streams have decreased so much?
2: Yes, so we're already seeing that the loss of tourism revenue for our protected areas and and conservation is devastating. It's posing a serious threat to the financial sustainability of protected areas, as well as the broader nature-based tourism industry. There's no income from entry to parks, from accommodation or activities like game drives and in South Africa where income generated by tourism is the main revenue source, this will greatly reduce operating budgets and the capacity to protect and monitor and manage these areas. A further complexity would be the risk of job losses for people who were working in the park, who live around the park and a reduction in opportunities to support local communities living around protected areas. There really does need to be a shorter term emergency response to try and keep operations going. Of course, in the longer term, uh, an economic recession and perhaps changes in people's behaviour and attitude towards travel will mean that tourism doesn't recover or starts to take a different form. So we need to be looking at diversifying, looking at alternative long-term solutions for financing if we want protected areas and and wildlife to be conserved into the future.
0: Throughout the making of this podcast, it's become clear to me that there's a real frustration within the community that study and combat the illegal wildlife trade, and that's that it's treated as a conservation issue rather than a crime issue. How important is it that this gets the recognition as a crime issue first?
2: Yes, I do, absolutely. poor rhinos are unfortunate that they happen to have a very high-value illicit product associated with them. And the criminal syndicates who are trafficking a whole range of products worldwide have just latched onto this as another source of income. And and I'm not sure that the wildlife and conservation authorities are necessarily, well, they're not necessarily the right people to be able to deal with organized syndicated crime at the highest levels. There must be collaboration and cooperation between the different law enforcement bodies. But a recognition, as you say, of the seriousness of this crime and provision of the resources required to really address it.
0: Do you think that the lower poaching levels that we've seen can be sustained post-COVID?
2: This is a great question, and it's something we're really looking at and thinking about right now. The the dramatic decline that's been reported for rhino poaching has very much been an unintended outcome from poaching and lockdown. It's achieved this transformational change that so many people have been working towards for a decade or more. However, as, as you and listeners will know, the kind of networks and syndicates are involved in these activities will already be looking for alternative opportunities and ways to slip through the cracks, as well as preparing for the easing of any restrictions. So I think... It's a useful time to try and understand the system better and understand and try and identify what have been the real leverage points, where have been the key breaks in the links in the chain which have enabled this to happen, and are there ways that we can maintain their effectiveness post-lockdown and and post-COVID? Obviously, the current lockdown can't continue forever, but are there key activities that we can do that will continue to hold this in place? Where are the weak links? As you've pointed out, the the big concern longer term is this funding for protected areas. We're looking at emergency measures now for operations in the short term, but there needs to be continued investment into wildlife trafficking as a serious organised crime going forward.
0: That was Joe Shaw, Senior Manager of the Wildlife Programme for the WWF in South Africa. So what is the difference between poaching and trafficking? because those involved are very different. On the poaching side, it can be very local, it can give an opportunity of a livelihood and is often done by people who have little opportunity for other employment. Poaching is also not just about the iconic species like rhino and elephant. Bushmeat hunting is a real issue with snares being placed along migratory routes. And these snares are indiscriminate. Antelopes, warthogs, lions, leopards, wild dogs, wildebeest, are just some who fall victim to this method. Those that do the poaching are paid small amounts of money to go and poach. And it's important to say that when the expected economic downturn from Covid hits, more people might look to poaching and bushmeat hunting as a means of survival. It's after the poaching has been done that the organised crime starts. Those that move the product, ivory, pangolins, abalone, rhino horn, from the place of poaching across to the market. And despite COVID restrictions on travel, the illegal wildlife products are often shipped along with other products because these organized criminal networks don't just operate in the illegal wildlife trade, but other illicit markets as well. And typically with the high value products, more often than not, it goes to Asia. These industries are secretive by their nature, but the estimated value of the illegal wildlife trade is in the billions. Alistair Nelson is a research fellow on the illegal wildlife trade and Resilience Fund coordinator for Mozambique for the Global Initiative.
5: There's estimates of between 7 and $23 billion, but it is very hard to get a real figure on it. So that's an, that's an annual estimate that actually came out in sort of 2016. Wherever you want to put it in that scale, it's, it's significant. Moving ivory in particular, it's a big product. So when you move ivory, it's very hard to hide that. And so it really plays a major role in increasing corruption in areas where corruption just breaks down law and order, it breaks down governance, and it breaks down economic development.
0: And what does that corruption do to society?
5: You know, if we look at, for example, at Northern Mozambique right now, 10 years ago, Northern Mozambique was one of the epicenters of of poaching, in ivory poaching, elephant poaching in Africa. And huge volumes of, of ivory were moved across Northern Mozambique. And There were always problems of corruption in northern Mozambique, but it was made significantly worse by those huge volumes of ivory moving across from Niasa Reserve to the coast and out. And a lot of people were paid. A lot of people were paid at a low level. So it's it's not only the value of the ivory, it's also the corruption and the breakdown in law and order and then what that can do to people's association with government. And in northern Mozambique, that led to an outbreak of violence where people feel that the government has just left them and only focus you know supports the corrupt few and has left them with nothing.
0: And how sophisticated are the organized criminal networks that pursue this illicit trade?
5: So one is a group that were called the Shuidong Syndicate that were highlighted in an environmental investigations agency from undercover work dated in 2014, 15, 16 and they used to ship ivory from Zanzibar to China and then later they moved down to Pemba. They were were very sophisticated. They made sure that they were protected. They had corrupt networks that allowed them to move the ivory easily out of the ports. They worked out the risk algorithms that were put on containers. So certain containers would be opened when they arrived in Hong Kong if they followed a route from Zanzibar direct to Hong Kong, which is where a lot of ivory was moving. So they would ship them to Malaysia, to Vietnam, to South Korea first. The bill of lading would be changed. And they basically, you know, their word for it is they said they controlled the route. So they would have someone in these different ports who would change the origins of that container. And it would be put on another ship. So just looking like it was a, coming from a regional source and then docking into Hong Kong and then driven overland to Shuidong. They boasted that 80% of ivory moving from Africa to China was going through Shuidong.
0: And what about the Chroma cartel, who were taken down last year by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service alongside the Ugandan and Kenyan governments?
5: That was actually a heroin trafficking network that had moved to ivory. So basically, they were bringing heroin into Africa and up to Europe. And then about five, eight years ago, they moved to actually getting ivory from all the way from West Africa, Central Africa, sort of conglomerating it in Uganda and then initially shipping it out of Mombasa, but then latterly down to Pemba and Mozambique as well and shipping it across to Asia. And again, they you know they really controlled the route. The croma who ran that, he would put Ghanaian guys often, um, so people from his ethnic group, into the ports and the places where he moved lots of ivory. So he actually put somebody into northern Mozambique, into Pemba. who actually usurped one of the Chinese guys there who was shipping ivory as well. They were very professional in, in how they ran their business and, and then how they moved the money back as well.
0: COVID, of course, has had an impact on everything in terms of lockdowns, border closures and reduced air travel. But shipping, of course, is still moving. And given the transnational nature of this industry, have we seen any impact on wildlife crime and the ability to smuggle things in and out of the continent?
5: So the, the Wildlife Justice Commission, who provide a lot of, of evidence to help countries build cases against criminals, and they have an informant network sort of, sort of spread out across Asia. And they've come out with a report recently which really those Asian, sort of Asian informers and, and how they tap information in Asia is showing that people are struggling to get product from Africa. Anything that goes by air has been hard to get. So rhino horn, pangolin scales. But they're also, those sources of theirs are, are telling them that, that people are stockpiling. I mean, that, some of that was happening already, certainly with ivory, as the ivory price was coming down with China's trying to stop the ivory trade. So, but they're sort of seeing stockpiling on that side. So. Uh, it's hard to actually know how much air freight is moving right now. So, but we do know that big airlines like Ethiopian Airlines, for example, are still moving air freight. And with lockdowns and quarantines and so on, we don't know whether that air freight is still getting the same quality of inspection that it was getting before. So despite there being lockdowns and air transport being impacted, there may be a chance that we start to see more product going by air freight.
0: And what about through shipping?
5: We don't know the impact that, that it's having on shipping as well. You know, I think that when it comes to moving products in containers, it doesn't matter really whether it's a small amount of ivory or a large amount of ivory, you're likely bribing someone to get that specific container not inspected. So if containers are still moving, then I think we'll see the products still moving as well. So that said, though, my overall guess is that there will be a hiatus while we're in this lockdown period, and then we'll see things moving back to normal again.
0: Now I want to move on to talk about bushmeat hunting. There are people who believe that bushmeat hunting is essentially subsistence and largely sustainable, but is that actually the case?
5: One of our major problems and what actually will probably do the biggest damage to wildlife in Africa is is bushmeat hunting. I think we can very quickly divide bushmeat hunting into two groups. So there's commercial bushmeat hunting, where people take volumes of wildlife and harvest it for its meat and then sell it on to commercial centers. The other side is subsistence bushmeat hunting, where people go out and take bushmeat for protein, maybe for household use or or for neighbors and so on. But the volume of people living around protected areas, there's a number of issues. So the volume of people living around protected areas means that that is largely unsustainable. Second, the harvesting methods. So people are using wire snares, sometimes cable snares, because cable lasts longer and they're indiscriminate.
0: And how are these snares used?
5: So in the Serengeti, now this is largely being dealt with in the Serengeti, but the Serengeti is a very productive ecosystem and it's big and it's hard to patrol and protect. But you can find snare lines in the Serengeti that run for kilometers. You can see them from the air. So the, the people you know, collecting bushmeat, they'll find say a dry riverbed with some bushes along it and then they'll break the bushes, they'll fill in some of the pathways through there with dry brush. They'll bend everything into a long line and then they'll put snares every 10 meters in places where wildlife can move through. And these are huge snare lines, and they can take out thousands of animals a year. So really, there's no, there's, it's very seldom sustainable. It has a major impact on other species beyond the target species as well. And I think that as our human population in Africa increases, it has the potential to really wipe out indiscriminately Africa's wildlife.
0: That was Alistair Nelson, a Research Fellow and Resilience Fund Coordinator for Mozambique at the Global Initiative. Like many other crimes, the online space provides another platform for the buying and selling of illegal wildlife, in whatever form that comes, and it was speculated that it would become a particularly important platform since social distancing has closed down physical meetings and markets. But how prevalent is it? Carl Miller is the Research Director at Chasm the Center for the Analysis of Social Media and a member of the GI network. As part of a GI initiative, CASM has been developing a system called Cascades, which uses machine learning to identify how animals and plants are being illegally sold online.
6: Yeah, so for our sins over the last couple of years, we we have been trying to build what's Capitalized as a cascade. It's best to kind of think of it basically as a circle process with a series of steps within it. You begin by finding seed documents. These are the things that you're interested in finding similar examples to on the internet. We then compare them with lots and lots of other kind of documents which exist online, find a whole profile of different phrases and forms of language which really demarcate the seed documents from the others, plug them in really great quantity into search engines, get an even larger quantity of of websites back, usually in the kind of hundreds of thousands, and then kind of push all of them through, as you said, a kind of machine learning architecture, which is basically being trained to separate relevant from irrelevant. All in all, the point of the cascade is to start with a small number of things that you're interested in finding more examples of online and then kind of cast this big process out into the online wilds and then come back with hopefully many more similar examples to one you started off with.
0: You built this in collaboration with the GI because you were particularly following the illegal wildlife trade online. Can you tell us a little bit about that initial study?
6: So the, the point of the cascade was really to try and build a system which could give us a, a more comprehensive look of the entire landscape of how CITES-listed plants and animals were being bought and sold on the internet, wherever that was happening, and and perhaps happening in lots of places that we had never heard of before and certainly wouldn't have thought to go look in. So the the initial work we did over around a year with with Global Initiative was basically to set up the cascade and run it in in three different online marketplaces to see how well it worked and, and how we could improve it. One was Pangolins, Another was ivory and a third was orchids. Each one kind of presenting a different kind of challenge to our technology really and kind of teaching us different things about how it worked and different things about the actual nature of the kind of challenge like technically that we were facing in in trying to do what we were trying to do.
0: So you mentioned pangolins. This was part of the GI's initial study, but you've also been tracking this over the last few months. Now pangolins have been reported as a potential intermediate host for the COVID-19 outbreak. Have you seen an impact on pangolin sales?
6: So, we, we've known that pangolins are being bought and sold online in reasonable and patent kind of openness for, for quite a long time. Over the last couple of years, though, and certainly since the kind of pandemic hit, we've definitely seen more links and more websites go offline, presumably as a result of greater scrutiny that alleged origins of of COVID-19 has cast on them.
0: Are you able to see how people are actually discussing this issue on certain websites?
6: Yeah, so the, the Cascade primarily is trying to find people buying and selling these commodities online. But it also, as the result of the way it works, kind of exposes forums and online discussion spaces, which also kind of normalize the the same activity so where people are kind of say discussing you know ivory statuettes or the relative merits of a particular kind of traditional Chinese medicine product which contains pangolin scale powder so yeah it, it kind of does both both the actual kind of buying and selling and the transactions and the order forms but then also the softer socio-cultural background which kind of normalizes and and essentially kind of authorizes those kind of activities to happen.
0: That was Carl Miller, the Research Director at Chasm and a member of the GI Network, talking about their research collaboration with the GI on illicit wildlife markets online. And you can find out more information on the Digital Dangers part of our website at www.globalinitiative.net. Natural resources like trees, water, wildlife, fish and birds have traditionally been thought of as part of the natural sciences, and the use of these natural resources as a development or conservation issue. But that's no longer the case, it's now also a crime issue. Over time, as the global criminal economy has expanded, increasingly natural resources have become part of the criminal economy. The illegal wildlife trade is another component, Throughout this series we've heard how organised criminal networks are no longer monolithic, they have diversified and they're always looking for new opportunities to make money. One of the things that's really struck me about the illegal wildlife trade is the evidence that those involved in the illicit trade are often involved in other illicit trades as well, and they use the grey areas within the wildlife trade to launder money. Meredith Gore is a conservation social scientist and an associate professor in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University.
1: So it's really interesting that you asked this question. So I was on a panel, I guess it was earlier this year, and I was on a panel with an executive from Whirlpool. So this is a local company that makes washing machines, and I was late. So I kind of just ran up on stage and I sat down. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, why am I on a panel with somebody who does work on washing machines? I didn't understand. And then he started talking about money laundering and trade-based money laundering of washing machine parts and counterfeit goods. And all of a sudden he started talking and I was like, wow, we actually have a lot in common. And so, yeah, you know, illegal wildlife trade is a legal industry. We have a massive global trade in wildlife that is regulated. Wildlife trade has been going on for forever. So we have legal wildlife trade. We also have legal trade in in meat and in agricultural commodities. And so what we see sometimes is that the same supply chain, so a legal supply chain for rice or cocoa or manioc is being used to move an endangered species that is being illegally traded. We see the same routes, the same supply chain techniques, the same stockpiling, warehousing, parcelization, delivery modes. So there's a lot of similarities, I think, between the structure of the legal and illegal trade. And then we do see money laundering. So the same financial flows that are used for legal industry are used for illegal wildlife trade. And then we see, you know, this idea of money laundering. You know, you might see a shipment of pangolin scales go from the western part of the Indian Ocean to the eastern part of the Indian Ocean and in return is a payment of plastic cutlery. (laughs) And so in some ways the payments aren't even in cash anymore. So it's really, it's really complicated.
0: The illegal wildlife trade has kind of been thrust to the forefront of this current COVID crisis due to the possible origin of the virus, the wet market in Wuhan. Do you think this is a chance for global society to kind of radically rethink the strategy to fight the illegal wildlife trade?
1: Well, I'm a chronic optimist, so I'm going to say yes. (laughs) You know, I think that as we are experiencing the kind of effects of COVID and the, the governance of the COVID response, I think that this is an opportunity to be thinking about connections between the illegal wildlife trade and other global systems. And so the connections with, you know, with human health and thinking about protein delivery and ethics and supply chains and economics and philosophy, and also just ways that we are kind of able to work together and also ways that we're not able to work together. There's going to be innovation that's going to emerge from this. And so it would kind of be a shame, I think, to not not think about ways that IWT, the illegal wildlife trade community, can can learn from this and do better.
0: An overarching theme running throughout this podcast from those involved with studying and combating the illegal wildlife trade is a frustration that is still considered a conservation issue and needs to be reconsidered as a crime. How important is that distinction?
1: I really appreciate that you're asking this question because I think it's a it's a question that requires more conversation. So a lot of conservationists say that, you know, illegal wildlife trade is not viewed seriously enough, and that it needs to be more, you know, given more attention by the law enforcement community and the criminal justice community. From a pragmatic perspective, though, we have limited resources. And so this then means that our law enforcement authorities are not doing something else, right? And so the question is, you know, how do we prioritize environmental crime, of which IWT is part, amongst all these other kinds of crime that we as a society are dealing with? homicide, domestic violence, child abuse, you know, there's a lot of other really big things out there. So I think that there needs to be some reality testing about where environmental crime sits relative to these other criminal activities that we ask law enforcement to respond to.
0: Given that there are finite resources available to law enforcement, are there other community-led solutions?
1: So there is also a community of scientists and, and others that Think about maybe alternative ways or integrative ways to think about reducing harm associated with illegal wildlife trade. So, not always criminalizing it, but viewing it as a harm and using community based kinds of solutions. And so, leveraging existing systems to try to prevent the illegal exploitation or illegal use of wildlife trade. And so, you know, I do a lot of work in Madagascar and there's a a pre-colonial system, the Foconolona, which is used to govern, you know, natural resource use that is still in play. And the Foconolona sometimes can be more effective, you know, from my research shows this and then others do too. A lot of the times the local systems can be more effective than kind of traditional law enforcement authorities at reducing harms associated with illegal wildlife trade. We also think about engaging like the religious community sometimes in demand reduction. So you think about the end of the illegal wildlife trade spectrum. Individuals who are using wildlife products to celebrate life cycle events like a marriage or a birth. In Indonesia, there was a a group of imams came together and issued a fatwa against consuming illegally poached wildlife. So I do think sometimes the problem of illegal wildlife trade is best responded to by law enforcement authorities, but not always. So we need more and better understanding about when and where I think it's appropriate to criminalize this problem. Because if we criminalize the problem, then our solutions are criminal justice space related in nature.
0: That was Meredith Gore, a conservation social scientist and an associate professor in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University. Finally, let's look at the legislation that currently governs the wildlife trade. It's an international trade agreement called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or CITES. Established in the 1970s, its primary goal is related to conservation, particularly those species that are endangered or might become endangered. It regulates species to ensure that they don't become extinct over exploitation and trade. It lists 36,000 species of animals and plants, which are then separated into categories depending on how endangered they are. Those in category 1 are the most endangered, so commercial trade isn't permitted. Most species lie in category 2, which means with the right permits these can be traded commercially internationally, providing that export will not be detrimental to the survival of that species in the wild. Although CITES is generally considered to have been successful, there are those that say that it has limitations and perhaps a new approach is needed because organised criminal groups have changed the way they operate in this space. John M. Seller is a senior advisor to the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime and the former Chief of Enforcement at CITES and was awarded an OBE for his work in wildlife protection and policing.
7: Organized crime groups, networks, are, if if nothing else, businesses. And what attracts transnational organized crime to any activity is profit. They, They want profit, but they also want low risk. And when it comes to wildlife, if you think of the number of customs and police officers who every day around the world, are devoted to trying to identify, combat, and bring to justice drug traffickers, human traffickers. No, it's in the tens of thousands. Whereas if you look at the same number of law enforcement officials that are devoted to wildlife issues, there simply is no comparison at all. And so for, for an organized crime group, that was a really attractive crime type to get engaged in. And when they began to realize that some forms of wildlife could bring them either the same amount of money as if they were trafficking drugs, or in several cases, more profit than if they were trafficking some of these other contraband items, then it's little wonder that they were attracted to this.
0: Is it right that the illegal wildlife trade is used to launder proceeds from other illicit markets?
7: The other thing, of course, that I think several groups saw was an opportunity for money laundering. And certainly, with regards to certain aspects of, of the rhino trafficking, there's little doubt that some groups were trafficking the profits that they were making from other criminal activities into wildlife. Because not only could that generate the profits, but depending on how they did it, they could end up with an item that was, to all intents and purposes, legal, even though they perhaps obtained it fraudulently. And this is where CITES, if you like, was exploited. You could end up using your criminal money, your criminal profits, to obtain things that would come with a CITES permit, so that you could then get that item, that product, that commodity onto international markets and trade it apparently legally. And so that is very attractive. To OCGs.
0: Throughout this special series that we've put together here at the Global Initiative, I've been amazed at how organized criminal groups around the world have diversified their criminal activities. They're involved in multiple illicit markets at the same time. Is this a way to get attention to the illegal wildlife trade to highlight that this is another part of their ever-growing network?
7: I think it is. And, and there are two points I would, I would make with regards to that. The first is that I suspect that that some of the groups that are engaged in wildlife trafficking are undoubtedly engaged in in other forms of trafficking. But I suspect that they are not covering their tracks as carefully when they deal in wildlife as they would if they were dealing in humans or firearms or narcotics. And so I suspect that there is, if you like, a, a soft underbelly that is being presented to us that we have yet to exploit. And and I'm sure that there are people that, if you went to certain individuals in in a country, to the serious organized crime unit and said, look, we're interested in John Seller because we think he's trafficking in rhino horn, undoubtedly you'd be told, John Seller? Oh, but hang on, we've been after him for years for human trafficking, drugs or whatever. The second point I would make here is that I feel there's loads of opportunities for the law enforcement community out there, and we're failing to exploit them. But time after time, you see customs doing really good work, intercepting shipments that are being smuggled from one continent to another. And that's it. That's all they do. They intercept it, they seize it, and it ends there. There's no follow-up investigation. There's no exchange of intelligence with the countries that it's passed through the country that it originated in, or with a country of destination.
0: So given all that, what would you propose if you had your ideal scenario, not wanting to fall down a utopian path here, but if you had your perfect scenario, where do we go from here? Do we adapt the CITES agreement, or do we come up with something completely new?
7: Towards the end of my time with CITES, I spent a lot of effort trying to convince people to stop looking at wildlife legislation and start looking at the criminal laws and statutes that are also contravened when this type of activity takes place. If if you're moving contraband across borders, you are committing a whole range of different forms of of crime, whether that's fraud, smuggling, corruption, you you name it. Decades ago, when Al Capone was finally brought to justice, it wasn't because they proved that he was a mobster, that he, he was the head of a, a criminal gang. He was jailed because he hadn't paid his tax. How often are financial crime units looking at wildlife? How often are anti-corruption units looking at wildlife trafficking? Again, all too seldom. It, it really frustrates me that we have taken years, if not decades, to get this level of political attention, to apparently get a lot of political will to do something about wildlife crime. But we haven't got the right people responding yet. Most governments have turned to the heads of their wildlife authorities, their forest departments, the national parks departments and said, right, you need to take the lead for our country in responding to this. These individuals, and I mean them, no disrespect whatsoever, are not the appropriate people to determine the strategies to respond to organised crime.
0: So essentially, it seems what you're saying is that this issue needs to be treated as a crime, as this will help get the resources and people with the necessary crime fighting and investigative expertise in combating serious organised crime and that the illegal wildlife trade needs to be categorised alongside other illicit trades such as drug trafficking or human smuggling and so on.
7: What I would not do is restrict that to wildlife crime. And I wouldn't in fact restrict it to environmental crime. I think what what we ought to do if we're going for a protocol is to focus on illicit trade because many forms of that are having horrendous impacts and in fact This COVID outbreak has illustrated some of that, the amount of illicit trade and fraudulent trade that has taken place in medicines, in medical equipment. But one of its provisions, I would suggest, is that countries should be required to criminalise, put in place adequate penalties to respond to criminal activities, illicit trade activities that bring with them a risk to human health. One of the things that is absolutely unarguable that has been proved in recent years is that zoonotic diseases, in other words, diseases that spread from animals to humans, they are there and they present huge risks to human health, whether that's SARS, Ebola, HIV, AIDS. And if if one can go to some of these law enforcement commanders and say to them, if for no other reason you need to target this crime because it kills people. It doesn't kill and kill them with bullets or snares or knives. It kills them with viruses.
0: That was John M. Seller, a senior advisor at the Global Initiative. That's all we've got time for this week. A special thank you to Meredith, Aaron, Alistair, Joe, Nirmal, Carl, and John. And also thank you to Milos Jakovjevic for helping to bring this podcast together. Remember that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter about coronavirus and organized crime by heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net, where you can also find other podcasts like Deep Dive, Exploring Organized Crime, the last episode concentrated on how the ongoing insurgency in northern Mozambique is affecting illicit markets in the region. Don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe and share the podcast around. Next week, we're going to be talking about corruption in the age of COVID. So until then, this is the Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. we will talk to you soon.